Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 243 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Robert Williams, a former Beach Boys musician and the author of Love is the Power, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love. Robert is an inventor of quantum code technology and the Heart Plus app. You can learn more on 108.net. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jordan. Thanks for inviting me. It's a privilege to be on your show. Well, I'm glad to have you as well. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? Wow, that's a great question. First of all, I think I think what comes to mind is that I am um, I am honoring and serving what I believe is is a a new blossoming of of consciousness on the planet, and I, I can go into detail why why I believe that why I see it. Uh, so I suppose my my daily attention is on how to how to serve that and how to um, join with so many other uh, amazing um, people of higher states of consciousness such as yourself and your community to make this world a better place. And and I have a couple ideas or a couple inventions and discoveries that I've made along the way, but I always consider myself a participant with with the with all of us and with the whole global movement that's happening right now. Well, let's start with this concept that you referred to as a new blossoming of consciousness. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah. Um, I have looked at different examples in nature. I've been studying these examples, these phenomenon for, for many years. So some of the ones that we've all heard about are the life of a caterpillar, let's say. So the caterpillar goes through a long phase of a certain form, a certain um, body, you could say, of the of the caterpillar. And then there's there's a something that begins to happen towards the end of that lifespan. And what we see is that an increase of disorder begins. So this is how nature prepares itself for transformation. There's, a, there's first a, a context or a paradigm that is somewhat stable and repetitive, and it repeats its uh, exchange of energy with the environment. And then there's an increase of disorder, an increase of, of chaos even, and then there's the transformation. So in this case of the caterpillar, it goes into the chrysalis, and then we see this beautiful butterfly in the one of the interesting things that I've noted is that the time span is very, relatively very short on the bridge between the caterpillar and the, and the butterfly. So what I have seen in my own life and what I experienced in 1979 was um, certain information fields that have been latent for a very long time that now are beginning to release their information, release their influence on the entire planet and on human consciousness. Hmm. Latent information fields. What do you mean by that? We're currently in the information age, so 
a lot of listeners may be thinking about the internet. Of course, this podcast is itself a, uh, a source of information. It's digitally encoded information. So what do you mean by latent information fields that are now releasing their information? Great, great question. So, um, Information fields in the in the sense that there are blueprints for life on this planet, and the blueprints, uh, the information in you could say the blueprint becomes active only when the right environmental conditions are are correct. So let's let's look at the rose plant. There is information that creates a seed. The seed is in the earth, and it has a long period of seedness, and then it goes into the sprout. Now, the sprout then goes into the stem and so forth. These patterns that the actual rose seed and then sprout and then stem follows have been part of nature. But the blueprint for, in this instance, the flower, the actual rose flower, is latent until the environmental conditions are correct. So the, the previous phases of the rose flower include the, the seed, the sprout, the stem, the leaves, each preceded by an increase of disorder and then by a transformation. So that the rose actually follows a pattern. The rose flower actually follows a pattern. So like that, humans, or all of life, we can talk about humans, have these innate field or information fields, or you could say these innate potentials. Maybe that's a better word, potential. Robert, um, could you... Could you, yep. could you also call this dioxyribic uh, uh, nucleic acid, deoxycyclic nucleic acid? Yeah. You, you betcha, yeah. Okay. And we're just beginning to understand DNA and RNA and, and what information is contained in that structure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so you're basically talking about the Human Genome Project and decoding DNA, uh, and you're fascinated mm-hmm. by this. That's fascinating. I I haven't equated it only to DNA, mm-hmm. and it gets, it kind of jumps uh, into a uh, you could say a non-conventional discussion. The and I'm not alone though. There's some scientists that believe they've identified this subtle information. It's 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 non-chemical. It's something between the um, atoms between the molecules is the information of the wave or the fields between the particles that influences the evolution of the chemical part. So um, that's, if that makes any sense, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, so for instance, electromagnetic waves, uh, which would yeah. include radio waves, which is how some individuals may be hearing a, well, a, a radio broadcast or, or television broadcast. There's electromagnetic waves you're saying are in, are interfering with with DNA, and of course, every human being on this earth is cur- currently uh, their bodies are being penetrated by electromagnetic waves of varying frequencies. Is that what you're referring to? Well, uh, yes, uh, waves and um, and as you know, electromagnetism. There are frequencies that are life supporting, and so our own bodies are held together by these um, these fields and these forces, uh, or the each cell is held together. So those are obviously part of nature, part of the natural scheme of things. Mm-hmm. You could say are good good for humans and life. Others are have come out of the different 
uh, ideas from human minds and are not attuned or not in harmony or not uh, congruent with these natural fields. They're, they're, they're actually both in the EM spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum, but some, the ones that you're referring to are certainly, uh, you could say, or have been absent and outside of the last 50, 60 years of humanity, and that's part of the problem. The, the human bodies literally have not been able to adapt to these new kinds of frequencies. So, Robert, we're getting into a lot of really interesting science, and I think we're going to come back to it by the end of the episode. But right now, I bet a lot of our listeners are wondering, all right, so didn't he start out as a saxophone player? How did he even get to this point with transcendental meditation and DNA and electromagnetic spectrum, and, and you had some near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences in between and ended up very interested in love? So let's start with the saxophone and walk, that, walk us through how you got from playing in a band to where you are today. Music was that condition where I felt the happiest. And, I, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners and you perhaps can relate. There's something magical that transcends all kinds of things, all kinds of separate concepts when we are involved with music. And so my father gave me a saxophone at an early age, and I played uh, since I was, I think, seven years old. By the time I got to my senior year or my junior year in high school, I was so in love with my saxophone and my music, and I'd learned other instruments as well, that I had my whole life planned out. It's like, okay, so I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to the best music college in the Bay Area, and I'm going to get my degree, then I'm going to go on the road with a famous band and see the world on the road, and then settle down, teach music at a local high school or college, marry, have five kids, and live happily ever after. So that was, <laughs> that's really... That was so ingrained in my future, and I was serious about it, and which is, which is, I got to be pretty good. Um, during my third year of college, which was at Cal State Hayward, uh, I began to have amazing pain in my jaw. And, of course, at first I just ignored it. I was only, what, 19 years old. Then one morning I woke up and I couldn't open my mouth. It was a horrifying experience. It was just locked shut. So to make a long story short, I, I began going to dentists and different uh, therapists and um, wound up in a clinic in Berkeley that was called the TMJ Clinic, the first temporal mandibular joint clinic in the U.S., by the way. And they were on to what was really behind our nervous system's stress and the jaw. And they did an x-ray and they found that there had been an injury that happened when I was seven or eight years old in my jaw, and they just saw that when I positioned my mouth around the mouthpiece of my saxophone, it put a strain or it, it triggered this injury, and the muscles would go into spasms. Hmm. So I remember that the, must have uh, been devastating the, for you, wasn't it, it Robert? Absolutely devastating. Well, the, the the funny part, this is the 70s, so you know I'm like I, ha I told you I have my whole life uh, out in front of me, and I was working, you know, practicing 20 hours a day sometimes, at least 12, and the dentist said, um, you know, well, it's just easy. You just have to stop playing the saxophone. That's what's causing this situation, and you know what? Everybody's playing guitar these days. Why don't you just start to play the guitar? And, and of course, 
that made no sense at all. It's I, like telling you to stop opening your mouth to eat and drink water. Couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. So I became very, it was a dark night of the soul, became very depressed, and wrote in my diary that I needed to discover something that couldn't be taken away from me, and I still have my diary. So it, it sounds pretty dramatic, and um, uh, but I, I continued to play my saxophone. I had gigs, and I was in bands and concerts coming up and everything. One day I, um, I learned about transcendental meditation and began meditating, and that sense of doom and that sense of despair and, and uh, the dark night that I was in just lifted. And for whatever reason, doing the meditation allowed me to feel larger than, or my consciousness was perceived as larger than some limitation in my body. So I became very much uh, interested in meditation, all kinds of meditations, by the way. And I went to a college in Fairfield, Iowa, called Maharishi International University, which at the time was a fully accredited college, transferred all my credits from Cal State, yeah. and, but didn't go there for music, went there for consciousness and began uh, participating as a student. The second semester I was there, uh, this was during the time, maybe we've all heard of the Beatles and the Maharishi learning meditation, the Beach Boys as well. So uh, the Beach Boys and Beatles had just finished learning meditation. They all had their individual opinions about it. Mike Love of the Beach Boys was really into it and decided to uh, do an album in at Fairfield, Iowa, at, at MIU for two reasons, to get away from the hustle and bustle of Los Angeles and to also promote the university. So I was on campus. They built a recording studio. They're recording an album. And when it came time to put the horn tracks on, somebody mm -hmm. told them that there was a really good saxophone player on campus. You know, why fly somebody from L.A. out? You know, those guys right here. So I got a note in my uh, mailbox, and I was very excited, very nervous. But I had to audition and play the part. I was on the Beach Boy album, met Mike Love, met the other Beach Boys. And before the recording sessions were over, I thought to myself, you know what? This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm going to have to like boldly walk up there and ask, can I join the group? Can I mm -hmm. be on the road with the Beach Boys? <laughs> and Mike Webb said, yeah, as a matter of fact, we need a sax player. So there you go. So my whole life changed. And although I still had the TMJ problem, as long as I didn't play for more than an hour or two, it was okay. So that jump-started my or, – or picked up where I left off my career as a musician and touring around with the Beach Boys. Did that for three years. Hmm. Wow. So you're getting involved in transcendental meditation, and that path briefly took you away from sax playing a saxophone. And, in fact, it actually brought you closer to reaching brand-new heights with the saxophone by being on a national music scene with one, with one of the hottest bands in the United States at the time, because they, too, had an interest in meditation. Right, right. I, I love the way you can correlate things, absolutely. And uh, so just to, to continue answering your question, how I got here, after three years of being on the road, um, I found myself really ill, very, very sick. Um, it wasn't just because I was on the road. It was other things. I kept going to the doctor's 
lived in Santa Barbara, kept going to the doctors, and they, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And I kept deteriorating, kept losing weight. First, my liver shut down almost and kidneys and so forth. I was just uh, in a pitiful state. And the doctors said, look at Robert, we don't know what's going on with you, but if you continue at this rate, you'll be dead in four to six months. We've got to get you in the hospital. We've got to figure out what's going on and, and save your life. This is where, Jordan, uh, in hindsight, there was a combination of a strong intuition to not go into the hospital at that time and also just a, a common sense. Saying, mm-hmm. Well, I've been seeing doctors for over two years, and they haven't figured me out. Now I'm going to go where there's doctors everywhere. I just didn't. It just didn't make sense to me. So I really, I had a belief in a higher power and a higher love, and said no to the doctors. I'm, I don't want to go to the hospital. I didn't stop everything. I still kept doing whatever I could, like vitamin C and so forth. But I stopped the drugs. The uh, the antibiotics I was on and other things like that, hmm. and just prayed that if there was a reason for me to live, it would have to be shown me. It would have to be. I would have to know what to do with the rest of my life. I had I had really accomplished a lot, had a lot of money and all this stuff, and was 25 years old, and just kept living from day to day. And one one uh, morning I stumbled to the bathroom and I either fell over and hit my head or I passed out, don't know which. But I um, next was out of my body and I had this near death experience which I can go into, but that actually then changed my life again. Because I saw things and I felt things that I had never imagined existed. And when I got back in my body, it was about twenty five, thirty minutes where my heart had stopped and they did all kinds of things to try to save my life. But when I got was there an the, ambulance there? Had someone called well, 911? Somebody, somebody ran in and somebody ran in and, and 911 and all that. But um, I actually came back into my body um, before they really figured out what was going on. And and my heart started beating. And this was back in the 70s. So these days they have a lot more efficient things they can do. In the Were they doing CPR to you at that time? You know, I don't even, I don't remember. I don't know. But you're I, sure I, your uh, heart stopped for 25 minutes? I, I am From hitting sure your that, head. Uh, they thought I was dead. They huh. did think I was dead. So they were doing, yeah, you're right, they were doing CPR, but they put me on some kind of a scope and saw that the heart wasn't beating. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because I never even, you know, it was such a life-changing event that... <laughs> I don't know exactly what they what they did, but nevertheless, I started breathing again, heart started, and I had a realization of what nature is and what it is in each of our lives, and that started me on this new path of looking into these secrets in nature and the intelligence behind life, and that uh, what I, that's what I was still doing. So, and, and have you played the saxophone since, since that point? You know, I I uh, didn't pick up the saxophone for 27 years. Wow, so you I, just walked away cold turkey from three years with the Beach Boys and told them, in order to save my life, I'm not, I can't play the saxophone anymore. Right, 
Right. And uh, but how did they react to that? Fell in love with the woman and, and proposed oh. to her and pulled out my saxophone for our wedding and played. Oh my god. <laughs> That's what got me back, because she said, come on, you, you know, you should start playing again. So I, I, I started playing. I still play for fun these days. So, okay, so you had an out-of-body experience in a, on the floor of your bathroom, and that was the catharsis for changing the direction of your life. It was an epiphany about the nature of the world, which had eluded you for up, almost three decades at this point, and now you're going a whole new from being a pop rock star to moving towards transcendental meditation, which is more of like an Eastern religion philosophy track. And that leads you somehow to uh, putting 30 millivolts of electricity uh, or 350 millivolts of electricity in water. Walk, walk me through that there. So, how, so, you're, so you're finding a new path. You have an experience. And and you and you're defining love as a pure heart consciousness. What what's going on? You you now know that you have insight, and, and and what happens there? How do you how do you get from there to here? When I um when I was returning to my body, mm-hmm. I experienced different dimensions or different things. Mm-hmm. One of the domains or one of the dimensions that I traveled through, I suppose you could say, I saw uh, a variety of symbols and uh, later found that they were sacred symbols and they're found in all the different indigenous societies and religions and in the art. The symbols um, at first I thought were some kind of a sign for my purpose in life. Later I found them to be just symbols that that are um, doorways for greater information, but I didn't know that at the time. I got back into my body. One of the most beautiful parts of that experience was when my heart was beating, my breath was was breathing, and I was back, like, felt my individuality again. I heard the birds outside, and I heard the sound of the ocean and the sounds of nature, and my experience was not separate from that intelligence, not separate from that wondrous, miraculous intelligence that's keeping the, all the planets just in perfect sync so that we don't spin off into the sun or out into the, you know, some other galaxy. And, and there's a delicate balance, and we are continuing to, to evolve and live and explore different things. So there's a, a basis for that experience as a human and as experience as a member of this physical plane that I realized uh, was always there with us. So now, how do I get to technology? So I I wrote down these symbols, and I began to spot them in the different religions, and I began to do research on what the symbols meant. And uh, I found most of the information in the Rig Veda, the the ancient Sanskrit uh, writing. There are, now if you can imagine like a beautiful piece of art, and you're looking at that, and as a human being, we're sharing this experience. We're looking at this piece of art, kind of a, a, a circular, uh, beautiful, you know, geometries and things. And we're saying, yeah, that's something about that. That's just beautiful. What it what it turns out is that these symbols not only have geometries and ratios, but are also found 
in how our DNA is structured and how our cells are propagating, how our cells are, are growing into organs and so forth. There's only, um, a, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing variety of basic, basic frequencies, basic codes of energy, geometries, ratios that govern but at the basis of, of all of life. And this was another great epiphany. And this is something that I read in books and saw in art and then began to work with a very famous scientist named William Tiller, who at the time was chairman of the Department of Material Science at Stanford. He taught crystallography and taught a very conventional um, class on how crystals, how the earth creates crystals and the complexity and the, geom the beautiful geometries that are physically in different kinds of crystals, including gems and stones. So he said, you know what, um, crystals emit, or precious stones and gems and crystals emit a certain kind of energy, and that's why we, we have them as jewelry, and, and, and other civilizations have, have placed high value on these different kinds of gems, because mm -hmm. it's really reflecting these geometries that are in our very cells, in our very um, bodies. And he said, if we can figure out a way to broadcast those frequencies over the airwaves, you mentioned airwaves, over with electronics, then we've, we've captured the, the essence of these mandalas, these sacred pieces of art, and we can project the subtle energy or, or broadcast the subtle energy. And then we went into, when we, once we discovered that, we went into all kinds of tests see the effects on plants, effects on horses, animals, in vitro uh, studies we did, and in human beings, of course. And so that kind of makes a, short, a long story short. Um, we have this technology now that, that, that is about these 108 frequencies or mandalas, and they are they're based in symbols, and the symbol, like a musician, if you saw a symbol of a treble clef, and a five lines and a note, you'd know that that was music. And if you were really good, like Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, you'd look at that symbol and you'd hear a note. So these symbols are, but you have to be at that state of consciousness. You have to know what the symbol is referencing. So like that, these mandalas are referencing higher states of consciousness, states of higher love, states of love and compassion, and there's where the whole heart plus application term came from and the title of my book love is the power because at the fundamental level we all are one with that love and that love actually is an is an evolutionary force that just like the caterpillar to the butterfly is moving humanity or at least attempting to move humanity we have our free will and the choices of attention attempting to move humanity to a higher state where there's less suffering, and a higher quality of life and more love. So, Robert, as we approach the end of this podcast, uh, I'd like to ask you a final question, uh, which is essentially to reflect on your interest in raising humanity to a higher state, as you just mentioned, through this uh, pure heart consciousness, this power of, of love and, and, and your and the second part of the title of your book, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love. As we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you, 
why is it important for you to move humanity from fear to love? Why is it important for you to share this epiphany that you've had with others and to try to make uh, the world better for everyone else? And I suppose I'd like to ask, what do you hope will be the legacy of your work uh, in, the, in these endeavors? There's still suffering on this planet. There is suffering. And there's cruelty and there's abuse. And I, I just bet you all of your listeners know that it can be better, that human, human life can at least be with less suffering, abuse, and cruelty, and all the terrible things that we know are happening uh, right now somewhere on the planet. Um, when, I, when I realized that my own healing was not a chemical phenomenon, it, it, it conjoined the chemistry, but it was a connection with through my own heart and filled with that love and grace that uh, changed my outlook and changed my very life force. Um, I, I had no choice. I, the motivation to help others is also built into all of us. So it's not just me. It is all of us that are beginning to awaken even more to the truth that's been always the case. And just like going from the sixth grade to the seventh grade and, the, you know, the high school, to we, we are gaining knowledge and experience and intuition about something better, something of a higher vibratory rate and something more loving. And that's just, it's, I think it's built into all of us and, that includes me. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that has been Robert Williams, a former Beach Boys musician and author of Love is the Power, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love, and an inventor who speaks uh, about bringing humanity to a higher state of being. He mentions uh, that he believes that all, all of us uh, have a built-in motivation to help, that we're innately drawn to, to collectively improve uh, the human condition. He draws upon a variety of spiritual and scientific theories, uh, referencing the second law of thermodynamics uh, and uh, the propensity for the universe to increase in its chaos, uh, and his interest in imposing greater order and, and love. But he also speaks of surrendering to a spiritual awakening uh, and he speaks of a delicate balance that is ubiquitous across the universe and within ourselves from codes of energy and 108 frequencies and, and spiritual practices that he's learned about to transcendental meditation to uh, more physical, uh, scientific uh, approaches uh, to uh, understanding our universe. Ultimately, what's most important to Robert is that he's seeking to advance the public interest by reducing suffering, cruelty, and abuse, ameliorating those conditions that do uh, hurt uh, us as we move through life and seeking to uh, create uh, more happiness, essentially, which is where this whole story started uh, on the stage with the saxophone. And, and I think that those feelings of love and happiness and his interest in spreading those uh, in a large sense encapsulates Robert's attempts to advance the public interest. So, Robert, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you again, Jordan. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. 
This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. (music) 